We want to squeeze in some time for Sandeep to talk about the gold bases. Is it one, one period or two periods? One. One, one period. Uh, what I thought was that we have two talks here. Defensive strategies and horizontal arbitrage. That's the afternoon, that's tomorrow afternoon, and Saturday morning, ag aggressive strategies and vertical arbitrage. So I could contract the two talks into one. We should free up one period. And it's your choice whether you would like to do it tomorrow afternoon or Saturday morning. I think Saturday morning. Then Saturday morning, August the 14th, the, the morning session will be Sandeep on the gold bases and cold bases. And the talk number 10, lecture number 10, will be combined with lecture number 9. And in fact, if I have a little time today, I could start talking about that because this is very relevant to what I want to say this afternoon. So please make a note of that. Saturday morning, it's Sandeep on the gold basis and coal basis. Uh, Peter is not here? Yeah. Oh yeah, sorry. <laughs> I was looking back there. Tomorrow morning you is that uh, your talk tomorrow morning? Schedule? Yes. The price formation of producer goods? Okay. So Peter has another presentation tomorrow morning. That's alright? Is it alright? Tomorrow no, no problem. Okay, okay. <coughs> All right, and uh, we are ready to discuss the critique of equilibrium analysis as opposed to our preference, which is this equilibrium analysis. This is the motivation for the whole course because we put a, a very different spin on this story of economics. We are looking at a process which is a coordination effort which starts with what we could consider a state of disorder and we want to see how the entrepreneur who enters the picture looks at the situation, doesn't like it for various reasons and then he starts his work 
and as a result of his work, he creates a higher order of coordination, eliminates disorder. The problem is that no sooner than he eliminates disorder here, there will be new disorder appearing there. So it looks like the cat, the cat chasing his own tail, but that's not the case because in the meantime, knowledge is being accumulated, capital is being accumulated, and welfare, general social welfare, is enhanced. And on the top of that, the entrepreneur uh, can pocket his well-deserved profit, which we renamed as, what's the name we... Uh, Pure entrepreneurial. Yeah, three words, but <laughs> every word is important because uh, profit has been given a bad name in our society. And actually, what you want to see is that without profit, there wouldn't be progress, there wouldn't be uh, coordination improvement, wouldn't be dispelling disorder. Why? Because profit is very much like, like uh, in biology there is uh, what you call uh, metabolism? Evolution? Uh, yeah, yeah. What is the uh, motor of evolution? Uh, natural selection. Natural selection. Natural, natural selection. That's the key word. Without profit, there would be no natural selection in economics because there are lots of people who say, "Well, I'm an entrepreneur. I, I know everything, and so on." But it is the actual market process which will test the entrepreneurial ability of these individuals. And that means that the entrepreneur can make a profit, sure, but he could also end up with a loss, whether he wants it or not. And what this means is that his Capital is taken away by society. You haven't deserved it. And society will give that capital to somebody else who has been more successful in this entrepreneurial activity. And if you didn't have profit, the, the method of transferring the ownership of the means of production from the less efficient, the less able entrepreneur to the more able and more efficient one is precisely the profit. I mean, society will forgive you once, it may even forgive you twice, but if you make profits, uh, losses consistently, then no more excuse, you, you've lost your capital, it's given to somebody who has been better. And that person has no tenure either, 
he deserved the capital which has been transferred to him by way of pure entrepreneurial profits, but he has to deserve it every minute of the day because if he doesn't then he starts falling back and there will be more efficient entrepreneurs who will be more successful in earning those very elusive, ephemeral, pure entrepreneurial profits and then he will also fall, fall by the wayside unless he is right on the ball all the time, no failing. If he does, he's out. And that's the iron law. And, and that's how you should look at competition. It's not cutthroat. It's just that you've got to deserve, if you're an entrepreneur, you've got to deserve your position, the ownership of uh, means of production every minute of the day. And if you don't, then you will be falling back, falling behind, and ultimately fall out of the ranks of the entrepreneurs. So, when we say we have shifted the point of view from equilibrium analysis to disequilibrium analysis, we mean this whole change of the picture. We want to look at uh, the um, <coughs> economic process as a, a huge play, a drama, with lots of persons, and the uh, roles are shifting. And uh, it is a merit system. Every, play, uh, every person has to deserve the slot he has been assigned because if he fails, then he will ultimately fall back to the ranks of uh, the uh, wage earners. There is no, uh, no dishonor attached to it, but uh, you, you no longer is this person the boss. He just has to take orders. And uh, that's the... Uh, wage of being uh, not as efficient as your competitors are. So I like that analogy when we say that pure entrepreneurial profit plays the same role as natural selection does in biology, which is the driving force of evolution. and. Uh, this is also a mental process, whereas in biology it's more like a physical process. Very often the, the males fight for the female, uh, you know, that's part of it. Now here, the fight is much more refined and it's mental. Um, the an entrepreneur who is going to come out on top is the one who has a better mental uh, capacity to fulfill the role he is assigned to. 
So that's the starting point. We shift the focus from equilibrium to disequilibrium because that is the natural state out there. It's disorder. That's what's given. That's what we have been born into. And then it's through this gradual change working towards a higher state of coordination that we arrive at a situation whereby more goods, better quality goods, cheaper goods are available to the vast majority of people and it's a joint effort. Every member of the society at his or her level participates in this uh, gradual process of improved coordination. But when we come to criticizing equilibrium analysis, we can be more specific. And we can actually point out that equilibrium analysis is one-dimensional. It's strictly working with two variables ignoring all the others. And these two variables are what? I'm talking about equilibrium analysis now. What are the two variables which equilibrium analysis looks at and ignores everything else? That's right. One is the price and the other is quantity. Quantity. Price is a function of quantity. So uh, this is the extent, it's one-dimensional. Whereas this equilibrium analysis, which is what we are doing, we are advocating, works, well, first of all, not just one, but two prices, but apart from that, uh, we have variations we can accommodate variations. So if you look at production, for example, take the vertical pipe, the input level is the producer goods, output level consumer goods, and uh, there is room for variation because the producer can shift his input. Assuming he wants the same, call, call the output X, call the input Y, and assume for the moment that no change in X is contemplated, which we imagine is a basket of consumer goods, but he can vary the input basket a little bit to come up with the same output basket at the lower level because he can look at alternatives of input. He can try a cheaper ingredient in the input basket or he can buy a higher quality ingredient in the input basket. And the purpose of the exercise is to make the production process more efficient, make 
the output, the basket of consumer goods, more appealing to the consumer. And for that purpose, he can, as I say, vary the input. But he can also do the same at the output level. Assuming the same input basket, there's no change there. He will uh, test the market. It's a market uh, uh, research type of thing. He will vary either the quality slightly or the price slightly in order to be able to sell more of his output per unit of input. If he does, it will show up in his profit. If he can sell more, then the per unit profit will increase and also will increase the total quantity he is able to bring to the market. All this is not possible under the equilibrium analysis model because the price is rigid, quantity is rigid, no variation is allowed and the equilibrium analysis misses all these refinements which are possible. They are very fundamental because that's where progress comes from. Through, through these small variations here and there, and other producers are doing the same thing. The uh, efficiency, the total efficiency, total productivity will increase and uh, society benefits. So we are no longer looking at consumer good or the producer good in, in isolation as does the equilibrium analysis. We look at it in, in uh, context with alternatives, shifting custom at the producer level and offering a wider selection to the consumer at the output level. This is something which has been captured for the first time when Menger brought in his point of view. Then this analysis became possible. And to my mind, it's absolutely amazing that during all these years, now we are talking about decades and centuries, uh, very soon that uh, the uh, uh, equilibrium analysis is still occupying the dominating position, cannot be dislodged. In spite of these tremendous advantages which this equilibrium analysis brings to the science. <coughs> So we have this insight into the effect of price, uh, in the effect on the price of the uh, alternative inputs and outputs. The 
entrepreneur has this special quality, maybe as a result of training, but maybe part of it may be intuition, part of it may be just adaptation to the harsh conditions of life out there. But he will have this insight to pick the various perhaps little or unimportant looking changes which he could put into effect and as a result you, he has improved his profit but at the same time the society benefits because the better and cheaper goods are available. So I'm looking at the uh, equilibrium analysis as a one-dimensional and black and white picture of the reality in contrast with the disequilibrium analysis which is multi-dimensional and in full color. It is able to accommodate all these nuances and these little differences which may be unimportant in isolation but in combination they uh, take over and they become extremely important. <clears throat> so we have now this multi-dimensional multi picture in full color which approximates reality far better than anything before, certainly far better than uh, the classical model of equilibrium analysis. And of course we keep in mind that arbitrage is the the engine of this change of the, the passing to higher and higher levels of coordination because this is the method of the entrepreneur is using several different kinds of arbitrage but the two main ones for our purposes the uh, vertical arbitrage one leg at the production goods level and the other and consumption goods level and remember there are further layers because we have uh, differentiated the uh, producer goods into first order, second order and so on. The order refers to the uh, to the uh, remoteness of the good from the consumer good level. See, certain goods will go through several transformations. They are, they are semi-finished goods and the order is getting lower and lower as the good approaches the level of the consumer good market. This is a very useful way of looking at production and this goes back to Menger himself who introduced this idea of the various orders of producer goods. Now, 
Mises, Ludwig von Mises, and uh, his contemporary Friedrich Hayek, both very great names in Austrian economics. They have described this pretty well, the same as we do, except uh, for terminology. They did not use the uh, language of arbitrage. You can check, I told you I have checked it myself. There was no meaningful elaboration of the concept of arbitrage. They keep talking about the price, as if the entrepreneur was always attacking price and making adjustments. But you see, the important thing is not change in price per se, but change in spread, which of course assumes change in price, but that will uh, put the purpose in this highlight, the purpose. You are attacking the price for a reason, and it's not always the lower price, but certainly the spread, and again I uh, will elaborate on this a little bit, that when it comes to vertical arbitrage, it's always a shrinkage of the spread. Uh, and this is not bid-ask spread, by the way. This is the uh, price of the input and the price of the output. And then you take the appropriate baskets, compare them, and take the difference of the price. And that is your vertical spread. It's not to be confused with the bid-ask spread. And as a result of the constant bombardment of the struggle by the entrepreneur, he picked a struggle which corresponded to what he considered a spread which was too wide. And he's bombarding that straddle, and he measures his success by the shrinkage of the spread. Okay? You can look at any number of examples of vertical arbitrage, which is a production process, and you will find that, that there's a vertical spread which has to shrink. If it fails to shrink any more than there are two possibilities. Either the method of the entrepreneur has failed, or the spread reached its natural limit. It, it, you have exhausted the possibility of that particular uh, vertical arbitrage, and a good, alert entrepreneur will instantly realize that. He will say, okay, the bloom is off the flower garden. So he would have to look at shifting out of that production and first of all find another, look at, take another look at the landscape of spreads, find a more promising spread, set up the straddle, corresponding to that spread, which 
<laughs> easier said than done because he has to uh, unwind his production facility here, sell possibly at scrap prices his uh, tools of production and set up an entirely different, maybe, uh, may, doesn't have to be entirely different, but uh, uh, it could be an entirely new production facility where he will start production and with a much wider spread. But again, the story is the same. That spread is going to shrink. So it's a constant movement of focus and the alert entrepreneur is not taking a holiday, is not taking a break, he is just at it all the time. He even dreams <laughs> with that at night because this is, this is his life. The, the uh, coordination, improvement in coordination, which we have now spelled out in terms of vertical arbitrage. But coming back to my discussion at the beginning of this session, it's not just the vertical straddle. There is also horizontal straddle when there's a variation of the input and a very or a variation of the output or possibly both yeah. then the entrepreneur can improve on his production process he has a, a, a more suitable input basket to start with and he comes out with a more appealing output basket which will appeal more to the consumer and in this way he will improve his spread and therefore he will uh, be able to uh, reap uh, greater pure entrepreneurial profits. Now I'm I'm not going to go because I want to save a little bit of time uh, to make room for our extra special on the gold bases and the coal bases. Whereas the vertical spread is shrinking, you may notice that the horizontal spreads, which is the result of one leg, remember yesterday, one leg arbitrage, either at the producer goods level or at the consumer goods level, which is uh, not uh, okay. In both cases, it's, the spread is widening because what is involved here is that there is an old input for the entrepreneur and a new input. He's shopping around. He's trying to find another input which gives him a better chance to generate those pure entrepreneurial profits. So there is the 
old input which he sells or doesn't buy but remember we have extended the concept of uh, straddling and the new input which he buys okay now when you buy something the price has a natural tendency to increase and when you sell something the price has a natural tendency to decrease as a result so when you take the spread high this is like this is getting larger this is getting smaller then the spread widens you see but the outcome is the same because his profit margin is going to increase and by the way the, this is also the same when we <coughs> I didn't point it out at that time but now we look back and we can observe that we started with this idea that the consumer is doing arbitrage also when the consumer is shopping around the housewife goes to the market decides that finished with that particular brand of toothpaste and starts buying a new brand of toothpaste then just follow through the same argument you will see that the savings increase yeah savings well probably the new toothpaste will cost less and the old cost more and then when you take the spread then the saving increases and this is a spread in itself and, and so as the saving increases the spread increases so is the opposite whereas in the vertical uh, arbitrage case we had a shrinking spread in the horizontal case we have an expanding spread but both will have the effect of improving the profit margin of the producer so this is this is what is going on and this is what drives the whole effort the effort of improving the coordination throughout society. So going back to Hayek and Ludwig von Mises, they used um, uh, a terminology which was a little bit clumsy. I'm not saying this is a blame. I'm just saying that, the, the, you know, like everything else tends to be improved. And what we did basically here in this course is we generalized the concept of arbitrage, bringing under that heading all kinds of activities which up to now were not considered as proper arbitrage, either because the two legs were not simultaneously put on. There was a little time difference, little or, or even greater time difference. But the purpose was there that I put on the long leg because I uh, will put on a short leg as soon as possible. So uh, we have generalized the concept of arbitrage 
for the purpose of giving a more unified picture. And that simplified picture uh, makes it possible to, for us to make sense out of the different activities of entrepreneurs and other market uh, participants which up to now were a little bit obscure. Nobody knew why this particular fellow in the pit, in the grain pit, does this or that or that. And uh, if you extend the concept of arbitrage, then this picture will be in sharper focus and then you will be able to make the distinction. And uh, with that generalized idea of arbitrage and also bringing in that language of spreads, straddles, and so on, the, uh, the understanding of the whole process becomes more clear. I will have more to say on that when we discuss higher. The same questions can be asked at the order of uh, higher order producer goods. So, <coughs> Uh, Hayek and Ludwig von Mises used, the, he, they were talking about the same thing, but using a, a heavier language, different words for what we ultimately decided the same words will cover, and it's just as well to use the same word because then the picture becomes simplified. Uh, however, I want to give credit where credit is due. The, I, I think I already mentioned that the vertical, uh, the adjective vertical goes back to Menger himself uh, who talked about producer goods, consumer goods being in a vertical relationship. Uh, the word horizontal came however from a 20th century economist by the name uh, Kuzner, Israel Kuzner. He was at the uh, New York University, uh, one of the Ivy League <laughs> colleges. Nobody knows how he got his initial appointment as being an Austrian, being a, which was certainly not a credential uh, ever since Keynes took over, or the ideas of Keynes took over. The exception that makes the rule. Yeah, yeah. But I could add something, a little tidbit, which is interesting. Uh, he, of course, retired. He's still alive, but he retired probably six years ago, and he had a, a, a favorite uh, student of his whom he wanted to recommend for appointment. There's a, there was a vacancy when he retired, and he wanted an, an Austrian to be appointed in his stead. And, uh, uh, by the way, this young man was a German. I, I even give you his name. Peter Böttke. 
that guy. I don't know where he is now, but it was a foregone conclusion that somebody with the prestige and influence of Israel Kuzner couldn't fail but get what he wanted from the uh, governing body of the university and Peter Pertke would be appointed. And he wasn't. They just said, okay, thanks God, this uh, Austrian retired, we have lots of our guys waiting out there, so we just give the vacancy to one of them. Forget about it. So as a result, a very important post which Austrian economists did have in New York and in the United States uh, went to Keynesian. I, I don't know exactly who it was, but Peter Butkett never got the job for which he was handpicked at the New York University, which is a, a very revolting thing. I, I, I thought this was just a shame. And uh, well, you can imagine how disappointed Kuzner was and of course Butke, he, yes? What year was that, Professor? Uh, well, uh, it was, uh, it, it was I think in the 90s. I said five, six years ago, but it was more than that. Okay. Probably late, late 90s. One can look it up. But neither man has published anything significant since this happened. And I'm sure if uh, the university had accepted Kuzner's recommendation, then we would, we would have uh, had the benefit of the this is the way it is, I'm sorry to say. I <laughs> don't want to bring my own person in, but I never, never tried in my life to get a, a, a formal appointment in teaching economics at any uh, university. I did teach one semester as a visiting professor in Guatemala, uh, where is a, a very interesting university named uh, Francisco Marroquin University, and uh, this was uh, founded by various entrepreneurs in Central America who believed in free markets, believed in Austrian economics. And there is the library of that university is named for Ludwig von Mises, just to pay homage to this great economist. And uh, what happened after I was fully expecting that my appointment will be extended because that was hinted at when I moved with my whole library and papers and uh, you know to Guatemala uh, that uh, it's more than six months and when 
the term was up, they just said, that, well, thank you very much. You can pack up again. So that's the way it is. And I, luckily my life and, uh, didn't depend on that appointment. But uh, uh, I was obviously disappointed because I could build up a very good rapport with the students and uh, uh, I was hoping to continue build on it but it wasn't to be, wasn't meant to be. So uh, this is the story on Hayek and Mises and uh, uh, what we are trying to do, namely improve on language and maybe some new ideas we can bring to the discussion which might just have uh, moving the science uh, further. Now, I I think I make a start on this topic, which we are going to contract now two topics into one. The the two strategies which are the most important strategies from the point of view of coordination. <coughs> I call one defensive strategy and the other offensive or aggressive strategy. The defensive strategy mainly has to do with horizontal arbitrage and the offensive strategy has to do with uh, vertical arbitrage. And I just want to discuss them side by side for a moment and when I come back to this on uh, yeah, tomorrow, right? then I, I will treat them separately. But now let's look at this Uh, side by side, the two types of arbitrage. We'll start <coughs> with that picture I already uh, used several times, the layers of goods, producer goods, and one layer of consumer good and there are various spreads which the entrepreneur picks that it's promising for his purpose. Spread usually wide enough so with his entrepreneurial attack he hopes to shrink it. So he picks the spread, spreads up, sets up his travel, and, and 
now we consider this as a vertical spread and a vertical straddle. And as I have explained in more details earlier this afternoon, the successful vertical arbitrage has a result which is shrinking spread. Now when the spread, vertical spread shrinks, this means that the process is coming to an end. There is a limit to the improvement which can be made in any particular situation like this, given straddle and the corresponding, given spread and corresponding straddle. And when the entrepreneur decides that his done his useful work as far as he could, then he is going to shift to another. But before he does that, he tries to stay with it. And this means, again, I have already discussed this, uh, shopping around at the producer goods level and giving the choice to the consumers at the consumer good level and this is horizontal arbitrage in both cases, perhaps you can widen the spread a little bit so that there's more work can be done. Rather than moving his capital to an entirely different field, he's st staying with it, trying to explore the possibilities of further Profits, pure entrepreneurial profits. And, and for a while this is going to work, obviously, because there is choice both at the producer goods level but also at the consumer goods level, which is a choice for the consumers and they can then express their preferences. So this is what I would call defensive strategy of the entrepreneur when the spread, the vertical spread shrinks, he doesn't give up immediately saying that that's it, finished, we go somewhere else, but he tries to save his uh, production facilities because he sees possibility shopping around and offering wider consumer choices, he might be able to work on that particular field. But it's a warning for him that the end is coming, it's inevitable. This is a given that the vertical spread is going to shrink. And then you may try to save it and postpone the evil day when you have to move, abandon. Uh, production at this point, but the writing is on the wall. Don't f uh, kid yourself because ultimately the mind, the field will be exhausted and the, the spread will shrink to the point that there's nothing reasonable 
can be done, at least on a cost-effective basis, to continue mining that particular field. So this is how a good entrepreneur approaches the production problem, the coordination problem, that everything is within a time frame. Because of constant change, these spreads are going to shrink. And when they have reached that stage, he will just have to move. So that will be the end of his defensive strategy. He tries as hard as he could to save his production facilities for further useful work, but the day does come, it will arrive when he will have to make the conclusion that this is time to go, time to move. So this is the other type of uh, strategy which comes into the fore at that point, namely what I call the aggressive strategy and this involves vertical arbitrage because the job is to find a new spread which is wide enough. Now he might save some of the production facilities but he might just scrap the whole thing and start a brand new one. There are various possibilities but this is all part of the aggressive, the uh, offensive strategy when he goes out and finds the new spread, sets, sets up the straddle and, uh, and uh, begins production in this new setting. And then the story repeats itself again. We have the uh, shrinking spread and then it may later lead to another another move. And that's how the whole thing is evolving. Not only our <laughs> favorite entrepreneur does this, but all entrepreneurs will have to do it because if they don't, if they don't, then they will fall uh, by the wayside. So, no, if uh, they couldn't fit that pattern of constantly evolving uh, ever higher coordination level, then they had no more role to play. Now, in this context, and that's my last thought, and then we have a coffee break after which we could discuss this further, but what I want to what I want to demonstrate, I already promised this, because all the four-legged arbitrage examples we have had so far um, refer to a situation whereby the entrepreneur put on an initial uh, straddle, which later he had to liquidate and uh, reverse it unwinding the initial and with the terminal straddle he was out. So
So this was a four-line straddle, but the peculiar situation here was that the initial long lag and the terminal short lag was in one market, and the initial short lag and the terminal long lag was in another. So there were two markets involved, uh, four lags were placed in, in this fashion. But when we talk, of, talk about this particular uh, offensive strategy in terms of vertical arbitrage of the entrepreneur, the interesting thing is that you can see that actually four different markets uh, may be involved and in most cases are involved. And the four legs, each of the four legs would be in a different market. So just think uh, of the situation that this is the old vertical straddle. Okay, he was he has production facilities, he's buying his input basket, he's selling his output basket, and this spread is shrinking and uh, he while this is happening he is already setting up a new straddle he considered the landscape of spreads he picked a new attractive spread which he thinks he can successfully attack and accordingly he, he will find a market and another market, in one market he will buy, in the other he will sell. So this is, uh, we have to find a word for that, this straddle is the outgoing straddle and this is the incoming straddle. And there are four different markets involved and he is moving his, uh, the outcome of this is that he's moving his vertical straddle from this position to that position. I think this is a useful way of describing this uh, strategy of offensive strategy of vertical arbitrage, whereby the uh, entrepreneur realizes that he has to change the field, and this is not a sudden change from one day to the next, but this is a transition and uh, it involves another type of four legged uh, arbitrage, four legged straddle, I should say, but it's a, an example of vertical arbitrage. But with this, I close and let's have a coffee and then uh, come back in half an hour. He abandons the old line and embraces the new line. Right. And there's a saving, a better saving. Well, the saving is a spread. Okay, so the consumer savings, okay. But so is the producer. Right, okay, I get the vertical arbitrage. The vertical spread increases no, by horizontal the arbitrage. The vertical spread always decreases. But the, but the producer can, can widen it. 
by doing horizontal arbitrage on okay, inputs. Okay. I get that. Okay. That's simple. Okay. Okay, so you're you're just simply saying the consumer's own spread is is widening. You know, but, but not the not the spread between the old consumer product and the new consumer product. That spread is narrowing. Yeah. If I don't buy Sony and I start buying Toshiba, Toshiba goes up and Sony goes down. That's a narrowing. Mm -hmm. Okay. Is it a narrowing, Professor? Well, in that case, it is. But uh, what I am talking about is that the uh, consumer is shifting his custom. Yeah. He's looking for a cheaper product. Yeah. And if he finds it, there's a greater saving for him. And the saving is a spread. And that spread is wide. wide. Okay, so your own, your, that only measures the point from zero because you haven't spent anything. And it's, so what he's now going to spend is less than what he was going to spend. Mm. So it's... Yeah, okay, that, that's... Mm. you ask now and perhaps you can now explain it to the rest of okay so, so I was asking a question professor I thought he said horizontal arbitrage acts to widen the spread which is the exact opposite mechanism of the uh, straddles that we've been talking about for the past three days tend to contract spreads and he said this one widens the spread so I'm trying to figure out if you shift your custom from a manufacturer which is higher to a manufacturer which is lower, then you're going to do this. That particular spread. Yeah, but narrows. that's a vertical spread. No, no. This is a, this is the horizontal spread. No, no. Consumer. If you take two different levels, that's no, same, same. I'm talking about price. Oh, same, level. same level. Yes. So let's say, let's say as a consumer, I used to buy uh, Minute Maid orange juice at two dollars, and I switched to Tropicana at a dollar eighty. I'm going to have the effect of pushing down the price of Minute Maid and moving up the price of Tropicana, thus that particular spread gets narrower. Mm -hmm. That's what I thought you were referring about, and no, I just no. couldn't make this sense mm -hmm. in my brain. Mm -hmm. But what, what the professor was talking about is as a consumer, you increase your savings. And so if you, save, if you look at your savings as a spread, you widen that spread. Or the entrepreneur increases his wealth. 
right. which is a very similar process at the production of love. But if you take a straddle where one leg is on at one level of production goods, the other is at another level, that's not a horizontal straddle. No, right, I wasn't thinking about that. That, that makes sense. Other questions? I would have a more general question if there are no specific questions right now. Um, this is obviously quite an important um, difference as we were also pointing out uh, compared to classic economics. So uh, how many major differences are in Austrian economics and classic economics could one actually point up? I guess this would be a, a, a quite a <laughs> big point. Monetary system is also even more important, probably, the, the, the difference. Could you just give a, a push this in, into a, a perspective? Mm -hmm. uh, well, uh, if you can think of others, what I mentioned and what has already been mentioned, uh, you can add that. But I think the starting point is <coughs> Menger's work on the bid-ask price. It's no longer a monolithic price. It's now that has several implications, and uh, one is that it's no longer equilibrium because equilibrium assumes one. There cannot be two equilibrium positions. And uh, so this is going to be a new type of analysis. It's what we call this equilibrium. The other is the concept of marketability, which also comes from this. So really, that's the root idea. The, fact that there's not one price, but at least two, maybe more, because uh, sellers are quoting different spreads for different quantities, but let's just simplify it and say not one price, but two prices, so that has one consequence, this equilibrium analysis. The other is marketability, and then we have seen marketability is split, can be split into two branches, marketability in the large, marketability in the small, and you develop these separately because they become quite different. Marketability in the large is, uh, you have to think of examples, and I didn't give you these examples when I talked about that earlier, so I give you the examples now. One example is when you buy whole countries. It's no longer fashionable, <laughs> but it was fashionable in earlier centuries. The United States purchased Louisiana, Alaska, Alaska and uh, there were other examples earlier on. And uh, uh, this is a market situation, but there are lots of non-market situations transferring countries when uh, royal marriage took place. The uh, 
the uh, uh, the bride could take a whole country as uh, dowry. dowry. So, I mean, these are transactions of very large values. And it's interesting that the, uh, to note that the United States paid the price of Louisiana in gold and also that's to France and then the uh, United States bought Alaska from Russia and again, what was it, four million gold dollars, something, I'm not sure if I remember correctly. Uh, but it was gold, you see. I don't think <laughs> there, there is any market for countries anymore because there's only paper money yet. <laughs> Nobody in his right mind would accept paper money for a whole country with uh, all the wealth which comes with the country. But for, for gold payments, it was possible, and I think it would still be possible. And what a wonderful way of avoiding wars, isn't it? When you have a territorial dispute, so you just sit down and say, okay, the highest bidder, whoever bids more for that piece of land, Kashmir or uh, what, uh, the, there are other... One proposes a price and the other one decides whether he's a buyer or a seller at that price. Yeah. That's how businesses break up usually. Yeah. Well, Germany was looking to buy some of the Greek islands uh, to pay off their debts. I don't know whether they're still looking into that or not, though. Or whether that was a recently? That was recently. Oh, very interesting. That was the IMF to buy the islands. Oh, the IMF wanted to sell the islands. China. China. Oh, China. Oh, right. Well, there is Chinese-Indian dispute over the border. So they could say, all right, you want that barren piece of land? Put down your gold. Your word is as good as yeah. Another example of very, very large payments is ransom money. When a king is kidnapped, then ransom is set. But it's not set in paper money, of course, it's set in gold. Even silver, I don't think, is is acceptable. So all these historical examples of ransom payments, um, and I, I have in mind the royal, because uh, kidnapping a billionaire is uh, peanuts in comparison with kidnapping a, 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 a reigning king. Kidnap Obama. <laughs> Obama. Oh, Obama. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so these are examples of very large payments. Plus, yes, Louis. Um, well, it seems this, uh, what we're learning here, gives the entrepreneur a very critical role mm. in, in the economy, right? Yeah. Critical, critical um, And. Um, so far, it's been mainly 
discussion of producers and consumers. Or there's mm -hmm. another party in, in all of this <laughs> we haven't mentioned yet. I was just wondering if what if it's going to come into the discussion later on because that party is screwing everything up these days. It's the government. Well, the government with the cost of goods, interfering with the choices available, mm. interfering. Are you going to bring that in at some no, stage? Well, I, I don't mind if you do, but I didn't have plans to do it myself. Uh, largely, uh, what I can say is the government has a negative role. The government cannot produce any good as such. The government can take it away from Peter to give it to Paul or vice versa. But that's not a productive activity. It's legalized stealing. And, uh, well, I, I, I agree. I agree with that. But nevertheless, there is the involvement of government in the process. And an entrepreneur now has to take that into account? Or how can oh, yeah. an entrepreneur take that? Well, there's a lot of distortion. There's because what would have been um, an appropriate choice between yeah. two inputs. No, I think it's very good that you brought the idea up. Distorts everything. And, and I want to give you the worst example of all of government interference. In particular, uh, I am referring to the introduction of the federal income tax in the United States. The year was 1913, you see. And, and I want to put into our present context, there are lots of other implications which are equally bad or even worse, but the imposition of the income tax has a, a very negative effect and it has nothing to do with the rate, whether it's 2% or 30% or I think at the worst, uh, the highest level was over 70, 75. The marginal rate during, during FDR I think was 90%. 90%? When was that? World War II. Even before the yeah. Thatcher government. Yeah. Now, bad as this is, I think uh, the, the real damage is done even by a much lower marginal rate of income tax. Why? Well, we mentioned earlier, just before the break, the uh, natural selection, which I put into context with the uh, pure entrepreneurial profit. Pure entrepreneurial profit plays the same role as <coughs> natural selection in that it shifts the ownership of the producer's good to the hands of the most efficient entrepreneur and away from the least efficient. And this is constantly happening. So, generation after generation, but even during the same generation, if a particular entrepreneur gets lazy or for any reason 
less efficient, then there's an immediate, immediate punishment for that. Uh, uh, maybe it's just a warning first, but if it keeps happening, then this uh, less efficient entrepreneur is going to lose his ownership of uh, producer good and the more efficient one will acquire them and carry on uh, and society will benefit. So that's the role of the entrepreneurial, pure entrepreneurial profit. Having this very similar effect to natural selection. Now, enter income tax. What effect has this done on that process of shifting the resources, the ownership of producer goods from the less efficient to the more efficient? <laughs> well, <laughs> the immediate effect is that the, uh, the old line entrepreneurs become lazy. They are no longer threatened the same way because they have accumulated their capital when income tax was zero. And the competition now, the young guys or the better prepared guys, have to pay even if just 1% income tax. That's going to make it so much harder for them to accumulate capital in order to challenge the, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the old line entrepreneur. So in a way, the old line entrepreneur was given a monopoly, not a very strict one, but certainly it made the, the competition uh, much less efficient. Because the competition has to, as I say, acquire or accumulate capital in order to enter as an entrepreneur. And because of the presence of income tax, this edge is, is warm. Well, there's, a, there's a second pernicious effect of income tax. It tends to encourage vertical integration because you don't have a tax at each stage. So you don't have, the tax isn't cumulative throughout the productive economy from the mine to the smelter, the smelter to the refiner, the refiner right. to the manufacturer of, of bars, from the bars to the foundry, you know. If each one of those has to pay a profit at every step, a tax on the profit, capital is being drained. So you have these very inefficient, bloated companies that will not be as good at mining as a dedicated mining company. They won't be as good at refining as a dedicated refinery and so forth, but they're more efficient for tax arbitrage purposes. Yes. They yes. are precisely the businesses that fell apart when the Weimar Republic paper fell out of those vertically integrated companies. They were the first to collapse. Right. So, you know, it's just amazing that they brought in income tax at the federal level in spite of the Constitution, which had certain clauses that ruled out income tax at the, at the federal level. And they just ignored all the arguments which the economists 
could put forward against it. Well, we just talked about it without any special <coughs> preparation and we could come up with two very valid uh, arguments against it. So this is, and you see, once a tax is imposed, it stays. Even though they may have introduced the tax, putting a time limit that the tax will expire in four years' time. It never ever happens. Yes. Professor, I, I don't understand what you, um, what you just said. Uh, it seemed to me the way you were describing the effect of imposition, imposing income tax made entrepreneurs more efficient. So I obviously didn't understand it. Because it I don't made what more efficient? Entrepreneurs. It forced entrepreneurs to be more efficient. That's how it sounded to me. No, 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 no. So could you do no, it again no. or say it again? No, it, it uh, confirms the old line entrepreneur in his position because it will be next to impossible for the new line entrepreneur to uh, to uh, okay. to shift to get uh, get in, in to the ownership of the in other words the the, the old line entrepreneur is just laughing and say, thank you very much, government. I will have so much more holidays, so much more time to spend away from my job, and I don't have to worry. I don't have to stand on my tools all the time. I can rest on my laurels. And, uh, because because uh, the, uh, my competition will have to work double hard to accumulate capital that he but will surely. be in the position to compete with me who thanks to the absence of the income tax was able to accumulate capital at earlier times and, and uh, it's no longer possible for somebody to do but you can also turn it around because you ask the question, how come that the United States is losing ground to uh, foreign competition? Very simple. <laughs> the, uh, the domestic challenges to these quasi-monopolies of General Motors for the big, or, or big banks and so on. Uh, have disappeared because of the income tax or the fact that in order to challenge these quasi-monopolies you have to accumulate capital and because of the income tax this is so much harder or even impossible. But foreigners are not subject to the same income tax uh, laws. In fact, their own country, their own governments would give them tax breaks. And even some cases, the United States gives them tax breaks to come and compete. So in other words, for instance, in the case of the Chinese, they could bid away the whole uh, producing capacity of the United States. So just think of it. 
like television self-production or VCR or DVD and so on. Zero in the United States disappeared or went to China or other countries. Why? Well, the, the explanation is differences in income tax. So, uh, the, uh, it's hard to think of something more uh, negative for the economy than the effect of the income tax. You know, if you think of the position of the United States before 1930. By the way, income taxes were introduced earlier, but they were always considered uh, struck down by the Supreme Court as unconstitutional. I think uh, Lincoln tried to bring in income tax and some other guys, but those <laughs> Supreme Court judges had a better sense, and they just, and actually there is. Now, I, I think a state could introduce constitutionally in an income tax, but it would never do that because the other, that people will just fall tent and move to the next state where there is no income tax. But the idea is the federal income, federal income tax, and that was declared in the Constitution, ruled this out. There can, I, I forgot the language. The language is a little bit contorted, so it's not so obvious that this is about income tax. The word income tax is not used. But the interpretation, proper interpretation of the Constitution is that the Constitution rules out federal income tax. And then the. The income tax was a constitutional amendment. Yeah, but even there, I'm not familiar with all the little details, but even there, there were irregularities because the the the, uh, the constitutional amendment has to be uh, uh, adopted by each state, ratified. ratified by each state, and that either didn't happen or there was some challenge to it and that was never addressed to, I, I forgot. But it was not a clean job. That much is obvious. That much is obvious. And, and you see the all the socialists and the uh, Keynesians and so on, their whole system is built on the taxing power. I mean, they just say that the credit of the United States is above questioning. Why? Because of the taxing power of the United States. They can always impose taxes, and, but if they forget that <laughs> the country itself owes its origin to tax revolt. And if tax revolt happened once, it can happen again. So this is a quicksand on which they are trying to build. Well, that's a very interesting, a very interesting problem. <coughs> British income tax was, I think it was introduced to pay for the Napoleonic Wars. 
and they haven't rescinded it. Prime Minister Peel introduced it. Right. Okay. Let's let's not forget that income tax is just a new word. Before income tax, there were other kinds of taxes ever since the Egyptians. You know, um, kings kings are the most productive class as they own, so they need to support. Um, but obviously, it was never meant to be in the sense that gains meant. I, I lived in Newfoundland, not New Zealand, Newfoundland, uh, for 40 years. And, uh, in uh, Newfoundland, they had a chimney tax. Uh, chimney tax. A chimney tax meant that uh, at the end of the fishing season, these fishing uh, fleets came from Europe, mainly from England. Uh, during the summer season to do fishing in the very rich uh, fish rich uh, waters of the grand banks around Newfoundland where the ocean floor rises and then all the fish will have to go through this narrow uh, layer of water so it's easy to fish them with much more fish can be found there. So they came uh, with a full crew in the spring and uh, they went back for the winter but always lost a lot of crew because the, so many people signed out for the fishing fleet in the spring in the hope that they get a free passage to the new world and then they just uh, strike out on their own they build their own homestead and start their existence and escape the high taxes in the old country so the upshot was that when they wanted to sail back home in the fall they <laughs> were short of crew and although you know how those uh, sailboats they had to have hundreds of sailors to climb the ropes and uh, spread the sails so if they if there was a shortage of crew then they couldn't possibly uh, have a safe safe trip back home so uh, they could never solve this problem of, of uh, uh, how to keep the crew together. But then the order came from Britain that they should pull down all the chimneys so people were allowed to build houses but no chimneys so that in the winter the house would be useless without the chimney in the harsh condition weather. So that was challenged and then uh, the court said that yes, 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 you can have chimneys, but you have to pay a tax. So they counted the <laughs> number of chimneys <laughs> had the tax introduced according to the number of chimneys. So there are all kinds of... Uh, by the way, Peter is a tax expert, so if you have any tax questions, he is taking the highest degree you can ever take anywhere in the field of taxation. That's what you told me, right? 
There is no higher degree you can take than a master's degree on taxation. <laughs> well, I'm sure with new taxes brought in, there will be sooner or later a PhD or several PhD programs. Let's hope not. All right. Now, uh, I want to make sure that we have enough time for preparing this exciting excursion. I'm sorry I cannot join you. I would love to. It's a very nice uh, little trip, not uh, at all strenuous. And, uh, but I, I have to make some printouts for the rest of the program. Uh, shall, we, shall we call it a day? Okay, and then please make arrangements for your participation. I highly recommend that excursion. It's, uh, it's going to be very nice. Thank Great. You. Thanks very much. Thank you.